Amen. Well, friends, my name's Adam, if we have not met, and I'm so happy to be with you today. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You ever heard somebody say that? That's, that means something in combination is better than you might have expected just from looking at every individual part. Well, what's the phrase for when some of those parts go away and things aren't so good? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon like I have, and frankly, it's, it's affected my life deeply. There's a shortage of XL cups at Quick Trip. <laughs> How is a human supposed to live with less than 87 fluid ounces of something at a time. I don't, I don't know how I make it through another day. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, lots of things are in short supply around the world, like XL cups at Quick Trip. And uh, that's for two reasons, people think. One, plastic demand is higher for things like personal protective equipment or PPE over the last year and a half. And also there's a shortage of workers to process the plastic. So when one part of the chain gets disrupted, that affects how giant our cups can be and how much we have access to them. I don't know if we have any gamers with us, but they'll know that it's been a similar story with the PlayStation 5. There's a shortage. Sony can't get enough chips to fill demand for its console. So one of these bad boys retails for, I don't know, five or $600. It may cost you twice that if you try to get it online just because they're in such high demand. Same thing in the car industry. When one part is in short supply, the whole gets affected. And there's a lot of folks at our church that I don't have to tell about this because they work for Ford. And they've had to be at home for months at a time because there's a shortage of chips, these itty bitty little microchips that are millimeters thin. When there's a breakout in Malaysia and it affects production of cars in Missouri. When one part is disrupted, it has a huge effect. The chip shortage is estimated to cause the auto industry a $210 billion shortfall this year. That's billion with a B. A tiny part can make a big difference. Other times, changes happen with a major part and it causes a huge disruption. It causes a change. When Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham died, the remaining members said in a press release, got some Zepp fans here, some Zepp heads. They said, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect we have for his family have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. Rather than make a change and try and continue, when one of their parts of their band was gone, they said, that's it. That's it. I think one thing that 2020 and 21 has taught us is how connected we are how connected we all are. Even small parts can play a significant role for the whole being able to function. So what I hope we'll discover together today as we study God's word is that through the church, every individual can make an invaluable impact. Our scripture today is very famous for one part, but I wonder if there's another part that's kind of been overlooked throughout the generations. Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 10, when he gets some follow-up questions from someone that was in the crowd listening to him. This is from Luke 10, starting with verses 25 and through 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
So the man is, is really trying to show Jesus up a little bit. He's trying to test him. He's trying to get him to say something that'll, that'll be a good quote to use against him and, and, and get Jesus into trouble. But Jesus is very adept at dealing with these sorts of things. You ever get annoyed when, when you ask somebody something and they respond with a question? Jesus was like the master of that. And so that's what he's doing in this case. In response, the expert in the law gives the right answer. And good for him. But then his true motives are shown with what he says next. But he wanted to justify himself, we read in verse 29. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he wants to get technical with it. He wants to know the specifics. And I can appreciate that on some level. He wants to know exactly what he needs to be doing in every detail. But he's trying to split hairs to justify himself. That's another way of saying he's trying to prove his own piety. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, the man is trying to give, it, to give reasons why he's ascended to the level that Jesus is describing. He's trying to justify himself. And in response, Jesus tells him a story. It's a very famous one. In response, Jesus doesn't just tell the man an answer. He shows him. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So here's a map uh, of Jerusalem to Jericho. And uh, you can see the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Right above that is Jericho. And then you see Jerusalem kind of uh, to the lower left side. Southwest, I guess that's called. <laughs> I'm not great with directions. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. And Jericho is near the Dead Sea here, and that's 1,300 feet below sea level. So that's why Jesus said that he's going down to Jericho, because over the course of about 20 miles, you're descending 3,600 feet. That's why Jesus said he was going down to Jericho. And this road was rocky, it was steep, and it was notoriously dangerous. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said that so many robberies and murders were committed therein on this road that it was called the Bloody Way. And this reputation for this dangerous part of the country is, is backed up by Jesus' example of a man being robbed and beaten and left for dead. Jesus continued, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Not a good look for these two, right? Maybe they were in a hurry to get to church. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but they, uh, these, these would have been, these two examples, a Levite and a priest, would have been social contemporaries of this expert in the law that Jesus is answering. The Levites were the priestly uh, family from uh, the ancient 12 tribes of Israel. So the Levites go all the way back to Moses and Aaron. So that, they should have known better, the Levite and the priest. And, and the point here, the implicit thing that Jesus is saying is that you can know a lot about God and still miss the point. We don't know where they were on their way to. Maybe it was something very important, even something religious. But you can know a lot about God and still not get it. Contrast those two characters with the next. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
So there's, there's now a racial component to this story. The Samaritans were hated by the people of Israel, by the Jews, because generations ago, they married their Assyrian conquerors. So the Samaritans were once part of the, the, the people of Israel, but then they, they intermarried and, and they, they adopted some of their religious practices. And so they were hated. So this is ancient bad blood that Jesus is referencing. And he makes the enemy of the listeners the hero of the story. He's flipping it on him. That's what Jesus is good at. In verse 35, he continues, the next day, he, the Samaritan, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so a good Samaritan risks his own safety there on the bloody way on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he arranges for the care of the stranger, including future financing. Two denarii would have been two days wages. And so the Samaritan does a lot. That's who the story's named after. But do we overlook the innkeeper? Is there another part of the story that's worth our attention? Because it's the innkeeper who takes on the duty of helping this injured man long-term. The stranger he doesn't know might not even be conscious. The innkeeper provides the means for this man to heal, not only with his facility, but under his care and on his watch. And we'll come back to this in a minute. And Jesus closes the story with the zinger. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Then the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So this man, this expert in the law, came to Jesus trying to show him up. And in many ways, the opposite happens. Jesus chooses the least likely hero for the, to, in the parable that he tells. The Samaritan is the one who's the example of true neighborliness. Now the parable is named for the Good Samaritan and likely so, or rightly so. Uh, we even have, there's Good Samaritan laws in the United States. This is a, a well-known story beyond just Christianity. But the person who plays a part that goes overlooked is the innkeeper. Without the inn and its innkeeper, where would the Samaritan have taken the victim? It's the innkeeper who assumes long-term responsibility for this wounded man, and he's gonna front any future money needed for his recovery. He's gonna trust that the Samaritan's word is good, which would have been a stretch in the first century. The Samaritan man was courageous and kind and generous, but it was the innkeeper who took his generosity and facilitated the man's healing. St. Augustine is one of the most influential Christians in history, and he wrote this about his interpretation of this parable. The inn is the church where the pedestrians who return to the eternal homeland from this pilgrimage are reformed and repaired. The church is the place where at times we're the person who's been beat up and needs healing, needs to be reformed and repaired. Other times, the church is the place where we can bring our contributions to help other hurting people be reformed and repaired. I love this image of the church as the inn, of us as the innkeepers, that when we each bring our two denarii to the inn, the church can then facilitate ministry that becomes more than the sum of its parts. Each of us bringing our contribution that's combined with others who do so and we can do much more than we ever could alone.
In this three-week series, we're looking at how we can say, I'm in. I'm in. And I was super excited that today's parable was the inn and the innkeeper. I just, I, I, I had to tell someone that, even if I'm the only one. We're looking at how we can be in when it comes to the ministries of the church, to fueling them. And this week, it's how every person is invaluable when it comes to the ministry of the church, doing the ministry God has called us to. Now, this is a subject matter that I, that I actually don't mind entering, but I, I enjoy because when we do this well as a church, we're able to bless others and experience the double blessing that comes back to us when we take the blessings God has given us and choose to bless other people with them. And so we're gonna talk about what it means to give to the church to fuel its ministries. And, and I think it's easy to be cynical and to say, well, all the church ever does is talk about money. I think that's an unfair characterization most of the time. You got me this week. So if you're new, part of me wonders, oh man, I wonder if somebody's new and this is the first thing they hear. You know what? I'm glad that you're here because you can see that we take this seriously. And frankly, if we didn't do a good job of this, we wouldn't have a church for you to come to in the first place. So I'm actually glad that you're here. I'm glad you get to be in on this conversation because it's something we value here at church. And so what I wanna do is lay out for us five different levels of giving. And we can each locate ourselves somewhere on the spectrum. And I want to be sensitive and recognize that folks are in different seasons of life and in different circumstances. But part of what this series is about is asking you to consider what it would look like to take a step of generosity and faith. So some of us are at the point where we give nothing to the local church. That's, that's the first level of giving. Nothing. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. And the pragmatic truth is, if everybody gave nothing, we wouldn't have a church for anybody to belong to. Other times, we give something. And this could be when you hear about a specific need or we take up a special offering. Maybe you gave uh, to some of the things we highlighted earlier in the service, which we're very excited about and proud of. We come to church and we kind of give something based on you know, what we got on us. And I remember my checkbook or do I have any cash? I never have any cash. And, and, and I believe everybody's capable of giving something. And whatever that something is, it does represent a sacrifice, friends. Please hear me. A move from nothing to something is significant. Don't underestimate the importance of every part. Now, beyond something, we can grow towards intentional giving. And this is where our journey starts to pick up as, as intentional giving as a habit. It's a planned, regular giving based on a percentage of your income. And again, going from something to intentional giving represents a big step of faith. And again, I, I get questions about this sometimes. When we talk about a percentage of your income, some people might think, well, is that a gross percentage or a net percentage? And I love what my dad used to say. He didn't stress out about it. He would say, just give a percentage of something. Just give a percentage of something. Others of us make an increase in our intentional giving in terms of that percentage. And that also represents a big leap of faith. And friends, this journey of intentional giving doesn't take place overnight as we grow to the level of tithing. And that's the biblical principle of giving 10% of your income back to God. 10% of your income back to God. And my belief is that the tithe is what goes to the church. Sarah and I have, now I'm gonna give you a list of things, not to impress you, but to make a point. 
Sarah and I have given to missions through Love Haiti here at our church. We've supported international aid organizations. We sponsor two friends that are missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Um, I've gotten involved in things with the Chamber of Commerce or the Kearney Enrichment Council. In my mind, none of those are part of the tithe because the tithe goes to God in order to build up the church, which helps people find and grow in God's love. This thing that we value over and above all the under other wonderful options that we could be supporting. And so it's because of the specific mission of the church to make new disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world that we tithe to that specifically. And again, I tell you all this just so you know I'm smoking what I'm selling. I, I'm not here to, oh, here's all the things I give to you. I'm just trying to be as blunt and upfront about all this as I can. Now, beyond that 10% mark, we would consider extravagant giving where we continue to evaluate our resources as blessings from God and how those can flow from us to others beyond 10% of our income. Now, notice the words we have on the screen. Those, those are, are expressed for a reason. And the word sacrificial isn't up there because I believe beyond nothing, each of these is a sacrifice because we all know we could do lots of different things with our money. Each act of generosity, no matter how big or small, contributes to the multiplying of our gifts in God's hands. Friends, through the church, every individual can make an invaluable impact. I believe that. Through the church, every individual can make an invaluable impact. And so wherever you're at, I wanna give you a practical step to consider. I wanna encourage you to join my family and I in taking a step in generosity and in faith so that we can be in on doing our part to fueling the ministries of this church. And so this morning we've made commitment cards available. They're in the, the seat backs in front of you. Uh, my four and six year old put each of them there individually. And, and so to not make them bitter, I offered them financial support. So it was a pretty good trade. Saved me a lot of time. Uh, these cards represent your part in a much bigger process. This is a tool to plot your journey of generosity as you grow or start in this discipline of being generous. And friends, I'm not asking you to go from nothing to extravagant overnight. I just want you to prayerfully consider how God has blessed you and how God might use you to have those blessings flow from God through you to others. And so on here, you can indicate if your giving is gonna be yearly or monthly or weekly, and you can, you can mark down what that gift represents to you on the spectrum of giving. Sometimes it helps to write things down. And so what I'd encourage you to do is take at least one of these that's just for you. It's just for you. You don't have to turn it in. It's just between you and God. This is a tool for you to plot these things. Now, if you'd like to take a second one and turn it into the church, sometimes it helps to let somebody else know what your plan is. Uh, we're gonna be celebrating these commitments in two weeks as we all consider what it means for us to say, I'm in. And so I really do encourage you to take one that's not for the church, that's for you. And if it's helpful, we'll be collecting these in two weeks. You can also give them online. Uh, we've got a space on our website uh, where you can do that, right at the front there. What are the two most impolite things to bring up in conversation? Money and religion. Nice little cross-section for me today, right? Well, I'm glad I don't have a problem talking about either because that's part of my role as a pastor here. I have a conviction that each of us have a part to play 
when it comes to fueling the ministry of our church, I also have a conviction that as your pastor, I would not ask you to do something I'm not willing to do, me and my family. And so I want you to know that this fall, Sarah and I are continuing our commitment. We're gonna put our card on the screen of giving 12% of our gross income to the ministries of this church. Again, I, I want you to know we're not asking you to do something we're not doing ourselves. I also understand it might be difficult to hear about this process from someone who benefits from it. I, I get that. I do. And so next week, we'll talk about what it means for us to be invested in the church's uh, distribution of gifts and how the church facilitates ministry. And then the third week, we're gonna celebrate how when we all do this together, our church can have influence and impact in our community. Friends, I've been blown away at the generosity of this church. When the pandemic first started, I had a lot of late nights and I was mostly worried about finances. I worried about our employees. I worried about our partner ministries that we have long relationships with. I worried about our student and kids ministries and how we were gonna be able to continue to do those. Uh, I think the common word here is just, I was worried. And looking back now, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed by that. You know, I wish I could get up here and be like, I never doubted for a second that God would be faithful. No, I got put on blood pressure medication. <laughs> That's how that went. Uh, friends, over the last year and a half, our giving has never been stronger. Uh, in fact, it's, it's grown. And I'm convinced that it's still needed now more than ever. On Wednesday, I spent some time with our friends over at the junior high, uh, part of our church and a good friend of mine. Mr. Daniels teaches world history to freshmen and I got to be the subject matter expert. And we talked about uh, world religion's impact on history and I told him a little bit about my career path and how you become a professional Christian. And as a part of that, I asked the students, hey, do you think the world is getting better or worse? And I took like an informal little poll. And we talked to probably about 100 kids that day and all but like six of them thought the world was getting worse. I wanted to crawl into a hole and cry. Now I can understand why a freshman's cynical. A significant percentage of their cognitive life has been through all this junk. And they watch people at their community yell at one another at school district meetings on YouTube. And they watch the level of public discourse in this country. And they wonder what, what kind of world is gonna be left for them when they graduate or when they start having kids or when they reach 40. And they're worried. They told me. They've been disproportionately affected by this pandemic. They are worn out and they need the message of hope that Jesus offers. Now, wait a sec. Is that just freshmen? I don't think it is. Anybody else a little worn out? Anybody else need a little hope that Jesus offers? Friends, the world can be a cynical, brutal place. And maybe you're there too today. Maybe that's where you're at. But people in our community have been like the man going down to Jericho. They've had their joy stolen from them and they've been beat up by the ways of the world. They need a place where they can be bandaged up, where they can be healed where they can find hope. Friends, there is vacancy at the end, amen? There is vacancy at the end. People need a message of Jesus. 
They need a place where they can experience biblical faith, real community, and then be bandaged up and sent out to selfless service. We can facilitate that ministry when we choose to give to the mission of the church. And I believe that through the church, every individual can have an incredible impact. And everybody said, amen. amen.